And sometimes a slot needs to be filled and we say, ah, he's successful in the world. He must be the man. Or he's got an attractive personality. And we may not immediately see their faults because people don't usually parade their faults in the shop window. In the same way, there are some people we think, ah, they're not really qualified. But given enough time because of the kind of person that they are, you discover that they're highly qualified. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. Beginning in verse 20, the Apostle Paul looks at the pastoral care of elders, at how if they are to be disciplined, it is to be done precisely, publicly, and without partiality. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he reminds us that pastors and elders are not to be held to a different standard than anyone else. You know, in recent years, we've seen some political leaders in our country who have perjured themselves under oath, but one standard has been given to them, an entirely different standard for the rest of our people. One who's released with no problem whatsoever, not even charge others who go to prison for it. And sometimes in the church, we're guilty of doing the same thing the world does. When it comes to a pastor, we think, but he's the man who led me to Christ. He's the one who baptized me. He's the one who nurtured me and helped me to grow. And and we think that there's a different standard when it comes to a man of God, and there's not. If a pastor is caught up in public sin, it deserves a public rebuke that the rest might be fearful of sinning, that we understand that there's no partiality with God, which brings me to the third principle. It must be administered precisely publicly, but then it must be administered without partiality. What's implied in verse 20 is spelled out here in verse 21. I solemnly charge you and the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. Now, these are very solemn terms in which Paul issues these commands. He wants the church to give serious consideration to the fairness that is to take place when God's injunctions are carried out. He's reminding Timothy that this is done in the presence of God, in the presence of the Son, and the presence of God's holy elect angels. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, all of heaven is watching you as you administer discipline to God's elders. So you better not do it unfairly. You better make sure that there are two or three witnesses. You better make sure it's done precisely. But I want to tell you, Timothy, if it's done precisely, then you better do it. Because if you can back it up, you better not back down because all of heaven is making sure that you do precisely what I want you to do. There is to be no bias, no partiality. You see those two terms first? Without bias. It's the Greek word prokrimatos. Pra, we get our word pre before, literally before judgment. He's saying, look at Timothy. Don't make a decision before you have all the facts. Don't jump the gun. Get the facts first. Then he mentions, and he uses another Greek word for partiality. The word speaks about having an inclination towards something. His point is when you discipline an elder, make sure it's done in fairness. Lay aside all likes or dislikes because the worst sin is favoritism and the essential virtue is impartiality. So having dealt with the recognition 
of an elder and the discipline of an elder, he moves now in verse 22 to the ordination of elders. Notice, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. Thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Now here, clearly, he mentions the laying on of hands, which we've already seen in this epistle, as in 2 Timothy, is a reference to the ordination of an elder. Just a few weeks ago, we had two men on this platform, and we laid hands on them. What were we doing? As elders, we were setting them apart. We were recognizing that they were God's men, that publicly they were to receive God's approval, God's blessing, God's respect because they had been set apart by God to serve in the office of elder. But he's very clear from this context that the best precaution against scandal and having to publicly correct an elder after he's ordained and the best protection against bringing such disrepute on God's church is to do it carefully before they're ordained. For a year before we even discussed it. I prayed about it, as I'm sure the, all the other elders did. It was two years between the leaving of one elder and the ordination of two additional elders. And then after a year, we discussed it briefly, and we prayed about it for several months. And then finally, in two meetings, we discussed God's plan that we believed He had for this church. We exercised extreme care, knowing that those who are called to lead will have a stricter judgment, knowing that those who are called to lead, who are called to guard and care for souls, someday will give an account for their leadership, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us. And that's why we took very seriously what Paul has already delineated quite precisely in chapter 3 when it deals with the qualifications of an elder. Timothy, don't be hasty. Take time to carefully choose the person. Do not lay hands too quickly, too hastily on anyone. If you do, what's going to happen? He said you'll share responsibility for the sins of others. Failure to take this precaution on the front end, at the back end, it holds you accountable. Not just in this life, but as an elder at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, if the selection of an elder is not done hastily, it's done carefully, I'm sure with prayer and fasting, and an elder still falls into sin, then God does not hold you culpable. And so for the sake of caution, knowing that we're held accountable, he says to him, he commands him, keep yourself pure from sin. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. As we see in this context, it looks in two directions. It looks back and it looks forward. In the immediate context, he's saying, look at Timothy, don't share in the sins of an erring elder. Keep yourself pure and free from sin by not selecting an elder too quickly. However, by extension and application, when an elder keeps himself free from sin, when he walks with God in a life of obedience, when he seeks with all of his heart to obey God, then he's in a position to exercise discernment. This is really the instruction that Paul gave to the elders from Ephesus. Remember, Timothy is in Ephesus. In some years early, earlier, Paul spoke to those elders. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That is the key to guarding God's flock. The key to keeping dangers from without and dangers from within is first to guard your own heart. And I want to tell you, you could take that and apply it in many realms. Some of you dads, the key to guarding that little family that God has given you 
is to keep yourself right with God, to keep yourself pure from sin, to guard and watch your own life. Some of you have Sunday school classes. Some of you have a group of children that you minister to every Sunday. Some of you come back on Sunday night and you, and you disciple kids at all ages. The key to being effective is first to watch yourself, then you'll be able to watch others as well. So Paul first looks back, he says, Timothy, keep yourself pure. Don't hastily lay hands on someone and thus incur sin because you have chosen someone who's not qualified. But it also looks ahead. Look at the verse that follows. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, there are no footnotes, quote-unquote, in the New Testament Greek Scriptures, but I suppose if you could put one, this would be an appropriate place. Right after you write, keep yourself pure from sin, you could put a little one at the bottom of the page. You could expand on that thought by saying, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. And then he goes right back into the ordination of elders. But understand that this is not like a bomb just dropped in here out of nowhere where he says, hey, by the way, while I'm at it, this has nothing to do with elders, but, you know, don't drink water exclusively. No, he's reminding him, Timothy, if you are to keep yourself pure spiritually, you must keep yourself fit physically. Timothy may have wanted to take a Nazarite vow like John the Baptist where he abstained from the use of all alcohol or like Paul who makes a similar vow in Acts 18. We don't know what the basis was. It is interesting to look at even some of the vows that were being made in the early New Testament church or it's quite possible that Timothy wanted to drink no wine whatsoever so that when one would look at him, they wouldn't say, ah, Pastor Timothy, he's one who sits long by the glass. And they couldn't accuse him falsely of being addicted to wine. Now remember, again, as we've already studied in chapter 3, as we dealt with elders and deacons, and I dealt with it extensively, so let me just briefly comment on it. The water in the first century, for the most part, was unsafe to drink. And so it had to first be purified. And of course, the most common way to purify water was to add wine to it, a practice still done, at least extensively through the middle of the 20th century, by missionaries as they traveled around the world. And as you added some wine to the water, it made it pure, the bacteria was killed, and it was safe to drink. Constantly boiling the water was neither practical nor realistic, especially for someone like Timothy. Remember, Timothy has a unique apostolic commission. He is an elder of elders, I guess you could say. He's given reign over all the churches in Ephesus, as we will see Titus is given over all the churches on the Isle of Crete. That was a unique apostolic designation of the first century alone. Nonetheless, he found himself traveling. If you remember the Acts, he was on two missionary journeys with the Apostle Paul, left in another, a couple of places to go and wander and to minister and to teach the Word of God. So it was essential that he stay healthy, and as he traveled, it was essential that he have good water to drink. Now, here's the principle. Any kind of piety, any kind of commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ at the expense of one's health is not faithful to the admonition to keep oneself pure. Paul's concerned about Timothy, not just his spiritual health, but his physical health. And it's important that we take care of our bodies because they're the temple of the Holy Spirit that God has given us to serve him with. But there is no virtue or no spiritual reward when you neglect them. 
I was in a meeting one time with about 600 pastors in Dallas, and Dr. Kenneth Cooper came in, and many of you know him for his uh, leadership in the realm of health. And he said, if this group is average, having surveyed some 18,000 pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention, I could add 1,000 years of service to this group of men. Because he said, with about 600 people here, that's the number of years that will be cut short because the way some of you guys will abuse your body. All for the sake of Christ. All because you love Christ, you expend yourself to the point where you neglect your health. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, remember your poor little tummy. (laughs) Take care of that stomach. Take a little wine as well. It would be good for you to exchange some of that water with a little wine that it might be a purified water. And of course, this argument for his weak stomach is no basis on which we should drink alcohol today. Obviously, what's in view is not the free use of alcohol. It's a medicinal use of alcohol. Now, some of us read this and say, Pastor, I've been waiting for this verse. Finally, I found it. Here it is. But understand under biblical standards, the wine as it's packaged today is strong drink. Forbidden by God because strong drink leads to addiction. It leads to drunkenness. By the way, while we're here, taking a little wine refutes the false teaching of so many of these faith healers who go around getting you to simply pray the prayer of faith. They'll say, oh, you don't need a doctor. You don't need medicine. Just pray the prayer of faith. Just believe God and you'll be healed. What a sham. Now, God instructs his man, take a little medicine, too. You know, Paul, if you remember, he had some kind of physical ailment, some kind of thorn in the flesh. We know he had an eye problem, probably from having been in Pamphylia on the first missionary journey, where he probably incurred malaria. He didn't say, well, I'm just going to believe God and I'll be healed. No, he took Luke with him on the next two missionary journeys. So, Scripture refutes this whole idea, this false teaching, that the only way to be healed is through the prayer of faith. Now, God sometimes chooses to heal supernaturally beyond any medical means. And for that matter, nor should we be like Asa who put his faith in the physicians. Our faith must be in God, but sometimes God uses chemical elements, medicine, to bring about healing. So we have this footnote But then he continues on with the theme of the ordination of elders. Haste is to be avoided when you select an elder. And if you're uncertain, Timothy, the best test is the test of time. Character is always revealed with time. Notice verse 24. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Now, Paul is reminding Timothy that the ordination of elders, while a challenging task, is not an impossible task. That those elders who are called of God to ordain new elders need not fear implication in their sins if they allow enough time to elapse before that ordination. The reason is because with time, character will always show itself. The sins of some men, he says, are quite evident going before them to judgment. Some men have the kind of lifestyle, it's just a no-brainer. You don't have to wonder whether or not they're qualified to be an elder. They're constant critics. They create division in the church. Sometimes they bring sin into the fellowship. It's a no-brainer. They're not qualified. 
They're kind of like the unsaved whose sins precede them into the judgments of hell. But sometimes when you're dealing with a believer, it's not always quite so clear and plain, is it? And so Paul reminds us, look it. Your sins will find you out. Your sins sooner or later will follow after you. That is to say, the sins of some people, they are not immediately noticed, but given enough time, they'll show up. So take time, Timothy. Now he states it positively in verse 25. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. What's true of sin is also true of good works. Deeds that are good are quite evident. That is to say, if someone is really living a godly life, then it will become apparent to people. And those which are otherwise, they can't be concealed. That is to say, some good people are not immediately noticed, just like the sins of some evil people and some of God's people are not immediately noticed. Some sins are not discovered immediately, but they come to light later. The same is true of good works. Given enough time, nothing can be concealed. Now, Paul's point is to exercise caution when the candidate is selected. Unfortunately, sometimes elders feel pressure to fill a slot. I was asked by three different people, why haven't you selected an elder yet? When's it going to happen? As if their putting pressure on us was going to make a difference. It was not. No, you move with great caution. And sometimes a slot needs to be filled and we say, ah, he's successful in the world. He must be the man or he's got an attractive personality. And we may not immediately see their faults because people don't usually parade their faults in the shop window. In the same way, there are some people we think, ah, they're not really qualified. But given enough time because of the kind of person that they are, you discover that they're highly qualified. Some people who you think, oh, they're, they're not the man. You get to know them and you discover that they're sheer gold and they're wonderful for the position. So take time, Paul says, to assess character. And you can take that and you can apply that to just about every realm of leadership where you are involved in the selection of leaders. So that's the pastoral care of elders. Let's look at one more group quickly this morning. In addition to their recognition, their correction, and their ordination, Paul now moves to another group. He's already dealt with old men, old women, young men, young women, widows, elders. Now he moves to servants, the pastoral care of servants. Verse 1, chapter 6, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God in our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Now, I think a word concerning the institution of slavery might be quite appropriate at this point. In this paragraph, Paul is addressing Christian slaves who are in the church and the importance of their respectful service. Now understand that in the early church, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That's about half the population of Rome. In many cities, there was more slaves than there were more free people. And if this were a normal first century congregation, half of you, maybe even more, would be slaves. You'd be servants. Now slaves served in every capacity as doctors, lawyers, Teachers, musicians, actors, painters, secretaries. A man could own a doctor slave to care for his family. He could own a teacher slave to instruct his children. Many of the slaves were incredibly wise, intelligent, and cultured, while at the same time it was very possible for many of their masters to be cruel and ignorant. 
The philosophy of Aristotle was a leading philosophy that permeated thought in the first century. He was a leader that shaped the way people thought. And Aristotle said this concerning slaves, there must be a distinct difference between the master and the slave. A slave is a tool, a living tool. And there is no difference between an inanimate object and a living slave. In Aristotle's thinking, a man's slave and a man's shovel was no different, except one was alive and the other was not. And that was the attitude that pervaded the first century. But what you find even more surprising when you come to verse 2 and other places in the New Testament is that Paul addresses Christians, masters, who have slaves. You say, how is that possible? How is it possible for a man to be a Christian to own a slave? Well, you must understand that when Rome conquered a surrounding and rebellious nation, rather than taking everyone as a prisoner of war and to keep them in some building, they made them slaves. And so slaves were typically assigned to families. Certain kind of slaves could even be purchased on the auction block. Others could be acquired in the settlement of a debt. And so it's very possible that a Christian could have been assigned a slave by the Roman government, or maybe out of a heart of compassion, even purchase a slave out of the auction block as a child or as a young man or as an adult to save him from a horrible fate. This is the way Rome dealt with rebellious nations. And instead of imprisoning all these people, they simply made them slaves. And the slave owners, in turn, were subject to Roman law for their watch, care, and treatment of those slaves. And so a Christian could find himself as a slave serving under a pagan, a non-Christian, or he could find himself serving under a believer. So here's the problem. Some of these newly converted slaves that had found spiritual freedom decided that that spiritual freedom must mean that they also have physical freedom and personal and political freedom. Now, Paul deals with that problem extensively in his letter to Philemon. But please understand, God's against slavery. Just read what the Holy Spirit said through Paul to Philemon. You know, God doesn't like slavery. And yet, on the other hand, for that matter, not just Paul, neither Peter, neither of the apostles or any of them advocate rebellion. Rather, they teach submission and respect. And yet, as you read these men in the New Testament that God used to pan it, look up here, don't look over there. When you read that, you discover God hates slavery. God knew that it would be through submission and through respect that holes would be born in this mountain of slavery and that God would use the gospel to totally wipe it out. Now, in these two verses, Paul tells slaves in the church how it is that they should deal with the problem. In one verse, he tells those who are serving non-Christians how they should treat their masters. And then in the other verse, he deals with Christians who have believing masters how they should treat them. First, how Christian slaves are to serve the lost. They are to serve the lost respectfully. A Christian slave is to serve the lost respectfully. Notice how the verse begins. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves. Now that statement alone indicates that there's a certain indignity involved in slavery. All who are under the yoke of slavery, a yoke in Scripture, is typically used of something that's quite negative, with the exception of marriage. But very often it's used in terms of an undignified relationship, of one that involves a submission that shouldn't really be there. So he says, let all who are under the yoke, of sla yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. 
Now, I find it interesting that in this command, there's no incitement to rebel, to be uh, disobedient, to, to institute anarchy in the culture. And for this reason, a lot of people have assumed that Paul was soft. The liberal critic of our day said he was a mealy mouth who didn't take a moral stand firm enough against something that was inherently evil. But you cannot read the writings of Paul in the New Testament to know that he never condoned slavery. Already in the first chapter, he has linked man-stealers to whoremongers, perjurers, and homosexuals. But God gave Paul a different plan for dismantling slavery in the Roman Empire. I thought about it this week. I thought about the horror in our own day of abortion. Thirty years last month, we have suffered from abortion. 42 million Americans gone. We're moving into a, a point in our nation as the culture grays. In the next five years, a huge number of baby boomers are going to begin to uh, retire and draw Social Security to already a failing fund and all these workers who ought to be here, but who aren't here. All these dear, precious souls of God that God created that He viewed as humans from the moment of conception gone. 42 million babies in this country alone. And because we led the way as a nation, there are over 400 million babies who've been aborted worldwide since the institution of Roe v. Wade. And I thought about, you know, all that we've tried to do all the political maneuvering, all the picketing, everything we've done, not necessarily wrong. And here we are at the point in our nation where potentially we have people in power who may be able to overturn it. But I thought if we had taken that same energy and put it in prayer and the preaching of the gospel, how this whole thing could have been dismantled by now. Now, we cannot for one moment, as we think about slavery and the evil that happened upon African people in our nation and those who are silent, what a wicked sin to have been silent in the last century, in the 1800s. What an awful thing. And there were Christians who were silent. And then there were some who paid a tremendous price to speak against the evils of slavery. But the situation that Paul finds himself in, where over half the population is in slavery, necessitated a different approach. Slaves were to be a witness, first in the way they lived, and the way they honored and respected their master. And it was that kind of respectful submission and obedience that would give them the platform to convert the society. Half the people are slaves. If those that were Christians would simply submit with honor, they would find themselves in a situation where men would give ear to what they had to say. And so the more the gospel was preached, the more the laws on slavery began to change. By 50 AD, Claudius, the emperor, enacted that six slaves who had been deserted by their masters, if they recovered, they had to be freed. By 75, the emperor Vespian declared and wrote a law that a female slave could obtain her freedom if it was discovered that her, his master had prostituted her. By the time 90 AD rolls around and Domitian is in power, he forbid the mutilation of slaves. He forbid their execution and their sale for immoral purposes. And the more the gospel was preached, the more it changed. And eventually the whole thing imploded, it crumbled, and a whole new world began. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation and for change. And tomorrow we'll continue our look at this change and the way servants are to be treated, all part of our ongoing study of 1 Timothy. For a copy of today's message in its entirety, call us toll-free at 877-787-7478 and ask for part two of Caring for Members in God's Church. It is message 1TM12, and it's available on CD and DVD. You can also listen to it online at searchthescriptures.org and by using the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy concludes his look at the pastoral care of servants as we search the scriptures.